everybody, and welcome to Chef AJ Live. I'm your host, Chef AJ, and this is where I introduce you to amazing people like you who are doing great things in the world that I think you should know about. Before I introduce today's guests, I just want to remind you that my new book with Glenn Merzer on your health came out Monday of this week. I thank you so much for your support. And if you'd like to support it, it's available on Amazon. And if you buy it by October 18th, which is a Sunday, and before midnight, email us your Amazon receipt to chefajbonus at yahoo.com. We will send you all the audio files for free to this book, which will soon be available as an audio book on Audible, but for free, as well as many bonus recipes. My guest today is one of my favorite plant-based doctors, and I don't know why it's been so many years since I've seen him, but he's <laughs> going to talk about one of his newest books, which is called Memory Makeover, How to Prevent Alzheimer's and Reverse Cognitive Decline, which I didn't even know was possible. He is a founding director and member of the American College of Lifestyle Medicine. He is a clinical faculty member of the Loma Linda School of Medicine and Public Health. He's a wonderful speaker, and I know you're going to enjoy him. He's done so much work with diabetes and he's just great. His name is Dr. Wes Youngberg. It's so nice to see you again. Own Your Health. I love that title. I love your book, Chef AJ. I'm so uh, excited to be on your show and I'm looking forward to a discussion on this topic. Well, thank you. You know, I wish I could claim uh, the title because actually at first I didn't like it, but Glenn won and it turned out to be a great one. So thank you. And you have lots of books, not just the new one. Tell us about your books a little bit and tell not, not everybody might be familiar with you that's watching, but you do such great work. So why don't you just say a little bit who you are and what you do? Well, I, um, I've been in uh, a lifestyle medicine specialist now for over 30 years, believe it or not. And, um, and my, my biggest interest the reason, you know, we all have our story, right, Chef AJ? You know, you have your story. It's a great story of why you do what you do and, and, um, and how you got interested in health for yourself. For me, my story began when I was 10 years old and I found out my mom was dying of, of uh, brain cancer, glioblastoma. Mm -hmm. You know, and that was back in, in 1971. I was 11 years old and I was, I'm, I'm thinking, oh my goodness, you know, my age. It, it basically rocked my world. It, 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 it shattered me emotionally to lose my mother, my best friend uh, and at that time. And um, I remember a few years later, just as a young teenager saying to my dad, I said, dad, I wish I knew right now what my risk factors are so that I could start working on them right now. And, and without realizing it, that was the, the watershed moment in my life that focused all my passion and my energy into understanding health, not, not from a purely conventional medicine perspective. I had many uncles and aunts and cousins who are medical doctors and I greatly respect what they do, but I wanted to really understand the underlying issues of health and be able to effectively prevent them and to also reverse them when found early. So that that's, that's how I got into this. And then uh, Chef AJ, when I was in my early 20s, um, early to, yeah, early, early to mid 20s, I, I thought I was the healthiest person I knew. You know, I, I, was, I was totally into fitness and the nutrition. I've been a vegetarian all my life. I, I was doing all the right things that I thought were important. And, and then I had the opportunity to get some medical assessment. 1984, I was 24 years old, and I found out about my, my cholesterol being sky high and it, it, it popped my Mr. Fitness bubble and it made me aware that 
vegetarianism wasn't didn't go nearly far enough for me because even though I'd never eaten meat, I'd never eaten fish, I'd never eaten chicken, um, and I still haven't. Um, that wasn't enough. I was actually I had the underlying risk factors of cardiovascular disease, which was a big genetic factor in my family, and. And uh, I, I remember thinking, oh, I got to change something. So that's when I shifted towards a vegan, uh, more 100% plant-based diet lifestyle. And, and that was, well, that was uh, 35 years ago. <laughs> so you literally have never had animal products growing up. Well, no, I, well, I was a vegetarian growing up, which means I, I drank milk and I ate cheese and, and, I, and I ate whole eggs, you know, and I, that's how I grew up. But, you know, the, I'm so proud of the fact that my parents had the insight to raise me at least in that way. Um, may, maybe not the most optimal diet, but a whole, it, it impacted me in a powerful way. It probably limited, well, not probably, it definitively limited my risk for cancer and, and heart disease and Alzheimer's and diabetes dramatically because, as you know, Chef AJ, Animal products and especially the meats, you know, the red meats, the chicken, the fish, etc., are just loaded with toxins. They're loaded with the with the wrong type of nutrients that that negatively impact our health and turn on the bad genes, turn off the good genes. That's you said you were 24 in 1984. So was I. So we're the same age. You <laughs> well, you look amazing. <laughs> I'm guessing too, you. Were, you were born in 1960 as well? That's right. Hey. So you do not look 60. You look fantastic. I just, that is so cool that you've never eaten meat, chicken, or fish. So I'm sure you don't miss it. No, no, that's true. You know, and, and the ch we all have our challenges though, right? The, the, the challenge for me is more in the dessert line, you know, the, 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 the sweet type line. That's, and of course, I, I have chosen joyfully in my life to avoid those as much as possible because I know and I've learned more in the last 10 years that sugary foods, right, refined products are the anathema to body health and especially brain health. If you want Alzheimer's, then, then eat sugar on a regular basis because it will give you Alzheimer's. That is so interesting that you said that because before I became a chef in 2000, my job was working at retirement homes and I, 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 I'm not a doctor, but I could see there was, there was something about sugar and the way people were aging and what diseases they had. And it, so that's very interesting. You know, that's such a powerful thing you just said. Um, I've been working with patients for years now who have a tendency to dementia at all stages of dementia and of course Alzheimer's represents the biggest or the lion's share of all dementias. 80% of all dementia is Alzheimer's. So it's the number one thing. Now, um, when they end up being put in a home, in a, in a retirement facility uh, of any kind, it's like game over. Because at that point, these facilities, bar and large, up until very recently, do not pay attention to diet. They, they just assume that the pay, it's all over for the patient. They just give them whatever they want. They get them desserts three times a day. They give them snack, uh, sweet snacks all throughout the day. And those are dementogens by definition. The sweet snacks and, and sweets in general are very dementogenic. And what they do, and what you actually observe, Chef AJ, is that when people, when people eat those, it 
immediately changes their cognitive function. It, and that's why I refer to dementia as a temporary phenomenon that's based on an exposure. It's, it's an under the influence exposure, just like somebody who's drinking alcohol gets, gets dementogenic. If you use sugar, especially if you're at risk, you're gonna have a dementogenic hour or two or three or four, or even many of my patients for a whole week, they'll have a decline in cognitive function primarily because of that one cheat meal that they have. They think, well, everybody can have a cheat meal, right? Well, especially in the area of dementia, there's no room for cheat meals because they will actually set you back for a whole week many times. I've seen it many times. I, I love what you're saying because so many people shy away from the, you know, well, it's just too strict to tell people they can't have sugar and, and you know, vegans, regular vegans don't like me because of my message. I'm, I'm even worse, no sugar, no oil, no salt. And it makes it so hard to be for people to be vegan, but we're not trying to make it hard for you to be vegan. We're trying to make it easy for you to age well and not get Alzheimer's. And I would say that in all the chronic diseases, Dr. Youngberg, whether somebody has heart disease or diabetes or Alzheimer's, there's not room for cheat meals once you have the disease. That's right. That's right. The, the, the reserve capacity of the organ in question, whether it's the brain, the heart, the adrenals, the pancreas, uh, the digestive system, the reserve, the reserve capacity has been damaged considerably. And now you're dealing with just a fraction of what your original potential was. And you got to do everything possible to optimize. You don't have a lot of ro a wiggle room here. Yeah. So, so Dean is saying, does that include maple syrup? It's all sugar, right? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So, I mean, there's, you know, there's maple sugar. The problem with it is there's primarily sugar. Now there, you know, the, what about blackstrap molasses? What about, you know, there, there are healing ingredients in all whole foods, even if they're refined. But the problem is, the problem is, is that there, we are also in that sense, concentrating the dementogenic ingredients. And so, so we want to use our brains while we can and make decisions that allow us to get the best uh, of, of life, to get the best of nutrition. And that's what, uh, that's what allows us, as your book title says, to own our health. I love your voice, by the way. I could see. Were you ever a minister? Because you, I feel like I'm in. I, I just, you're just getting me. And going. some just, people that call me Pastor Youngberg, but I know I'm just a doctor. Yeah. <laughs> just, before we get into this, which I really do, I just, I, it's blowing my mind that you never had meat. Did you ever want to rebel, even in high school, and just have a hamburger and just, you never. Oh, never you know, tell. Let me tell you a quick story of my one, of my one rebellion, if you can call it that. I was 13 years old. I was on my way to summer camp. I, my parents weren't around and many of my friends ate hamburger and we stopped the bus on the way to summer camp, stopped at McDonald's. I don't think I'd eaten at McDonald's ever before in my life, but I've seen the commercials, you know, uh, two all pickle, you know, special patty, all that kind of those commercials. And so I thought, hey, I love veggie burgers. You know, my mom would make these great oatmeal patties, you know, and, and I just love them, you know, with, with a lot of tomatoes and lettuce and pickles and and uh and veggie mayonnaise and, and so i i love those type of um of uh plant-based burgers and so i thought well you know a mcdonald's burger must be about the same you know i was kind of ignorant naive uh, 13 year old and so i bought one i took one bite of that chewed it up and i go like that is awful and i i, I shouldn't have done this but i literally threw the entire big mac out the window of the bus um 
so so that was I you could say I've had one bite of of uh, red meat I guess you know in in the in the Big Mac um, when I was five years old our neighbors so we I grew up in Argentina um, where my dad was actually a, a professor at a university there and uh, and our neighbors were grilling some chicken I didn't know what they were grilling I thought it was I thought it was veggie meat, you know, because as we ate some veggie meats uh, in, in our home. And so they say, hey, you want some? And so I had a little piece of it. And I thought, oh, you know, it was, of course, it was greasy. And that was that's the only amount of chicken I've had. And I had one bite. I've had one bite of salmon, didn't like it. So that's the entire amount of meat or flesh food, Chef AJ, that I have consumed um, throughout my entire 60 years of life uh, basically is no more than three bites uh, of that, that and, just, and and I wish I could say I didn't have any at all, but I did. I did have one bite of each, <laughs> that, and, and you didn't like it. That's the best no, part. No, it's like, yeah, don't don't miss it at all. And you know, where did you grow up? I, I grew up actually. I was born in Chile, Tamuco, uh, Chile, uh, by via of um, via one of these volcano-like uh, beautiful mountains that I've climbed into in more recently. But um, yeah, my, my dad, my parents were Christian missionaries in South America. So I had a pr privilege of growing up in Chile, Argentina, Uruguay, and Bolivia. So the fact that you didn't eat meat wasn't a big deal. Like, like I could just see, like, I'm thinking of people with kids in high school, like that if, if they're, if they're especially male children didn't eat meat, they might get teased. That wasn't an issue for you growing up. Uh, you know, I mean, every once in a while, okay, I grew up, I grew up Seventh-day Adventist, just like Dr. Hans Deal. And, uh, and so sometimes the public school kids would make fun of us and call me peanut, peanut, you know, you got that because we, you know, we were known for eating more peanut butter. <laughs> and uh, that was, you know, that was our quote, uh, source of protein. And when in reality, you get, we're getting plenty of protein in, in a plant-based diet, right? And I ate a lot of beans and so, but you know, it was never anything that bothered me. I, you know, I, you know, I had a good life. I, 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 I didn't have a problem being teased. Right. Well, you, you seem to turn out great. So, <laughs> you know, you're blowing a lot of people's minds talking about this link between Alzheimer's and sugar, because they obviously don't want to hear it. And then it's like Linda saying, well, what about oil? Does that contribute to? Well, it's uh, absolutely, absolutely. Especially the cold, the, the, the heat pressed seed oils, okay, and of course the saturated animal fats. Those are the two worst types of fat for the brain because they create inflammation and the heat pressed seed oils in particular are just full of toxins. And so they, uh, the toxins are becoming a bigger and bigger and bigger issue with regards to cognitive decline. Our world is extremely toxic and that's that's the biggest reason why the world needs to shift towards a plant strong diet and ideally 100% plant based diet why because not only does it not have the toxins in it that the animal products have by by a long shot because animal products biomagnify and 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 by there's a gradient that the the longer that animal is alive as it eats food it collects toxins and then if we choose to eat the flesh of that animal we're consuming all the toxins that that animal uh, consumed and stored in their organs all in one meal and so this biomagnification uh, is is incredibly toxic 
to those who consume animal products. The, the second thing is when we eat a plant-based diet, we're eating the very highly nutritious diet and high fiber diet that binds toxins and also neutralizes toxins. So, so we're, we're in the best position possible. The first step always in, in, in reversing dementia, uh, uh, aspects of dementia and preventing further progression of dementia is to get on a plant strong diet. No question about it. Yeah, absolutely. You know, one of the things you said the last time I heard you speak and you're a wonderful speaker and you said it differently than other speakers is you said that oil is hypercaloric malnutrition. I love that. <laughs> that's, that's right. Yeah. It's uh, when, when we consume, when we consume re refined calories like oil, we're, we're getting hypercaloric malnutrition. In other words, we're getting a lot of calories from foods that are entirely malnourishing. They're, they're not giving us the very nutrients that were intended to come from the original food source. Okay, and so that's why we wanna go to the whole food to get, to get all the nutrients, whether they be proteins, fats, and carbohydrates. And of course, all the vitamins and minerals. There's a new wave of younger plant-based doctors that are actually touting the benefits of, of, you know, oil, like olive oil, things like that as being, you know, maybe even good for heart disease, things like that. So I love that you're speaking out against it because. Yeah, no, you know, I'm, I'm a big fan of healthy whole fat foods, like, like olives and avocados and, and nuts and seeds. I, I think that's, that's one of the things that we promote, especially for the brain, but there is absolutely no need for unless unless somebody is is in advanced stages of decline and and they're losing way too much weight, then then you know that I just saw um, I just saw a promotional uh, video for a lifestyle medicine doctor who is promoting uh, uh, basically a meal replacement products for people like this that are losing too much weight. We don't want that. But guess what the number one ingredient was? Oil. Sugar. Oh, sugar. Sugar. And yeah, number two was, was oils. And I'm going like, oh my goodness. Said so they, you know, we, we need to make sure we're giving them the right thing without creating dementia in the process. Yeah. So, so Judy says she read a book about coconut oil actually helping with Alzheimer's. Well, you know, there is actually some interesting evidence for that. But the bottom line is, is that I'm always looking at how, what, what is the real underlying story here? And how do we do this in a way that's best for everything, not just one thing? Uh, I had an aunt uh, who is a nurse. Her, her husband was uh, my, my uncle, uh, a physician who spent 60 years uh, feeding the hungry in Honduras and had a nutrition hospital. And, and she actually had advanced Alzheimer's. And the family gave her coconut oil and she started, her, her brain lit up. Now, there's a better way to do it, okay? And what I do is I recommend that people eat whole coconut flesh or coconut chips, which are basically desiccated whole food, right? Uh, and, and have that with meals. And what that does is it provides a secondary energy source to the brain. This leads us to the question as to why, now why would somebody benefit from that type of whole food fat uh, compared to maybe other other uh, nutrients or other calories, and the and the answer has to do with 
what Alzheimer's really is. The vast majority of people with Alzheimer's have a dysfunction in the brain where the brain has become insulin resistant. The brain has lost its ability to use sugar effectively from foods okay, and, and process. And so what happens is the brain becomes hypoglycemic. At least a third of my patients, Chef AJ, have a tendency to hypoglycemia. And by the way, that includes my diabetics and my pre-diabetics because what goes up oftentimes comes down just as rapidly and even lower. And so when, when people have hyperglycemia, high blood sugars, they're more prone, they, they produce a lot of insulin to counteract for that. And that extra insulin then drives the sugar too low. That is a, that is a recipe for disaster and, and atrophy of the memory centers of the brain, the hippocampus. And so we wanna prevent low blood sugars. The way we do that is by eating a whole plant-based diet that stabilizes blood sugars all day long rather than, drink, than eating a, a vegan refined diet that, that is one of the worst ways to stabilize blood. In fact, it doesn't stabilize blood sugars at all. It causes blood sugars to go all over the map and then people don't feel as well. And then, you know, the, recently there's been some well-known vegetarian actresses that have shifted towards eating fish or other protein foods and they felt a lot better. Well, the reason was because they weren't eating a healthy vegetarian diet. They weren't on, focusing on whole foods and, and once you start focusing on the whole foods, it's, it, keep, it prevents the spike in your blood sugar after the meal. It prevents the excess insulin spike that, that is seeking to con, uh, counteract that, that elevated blood sugar. And then it prevents the low sugar that happens at two, three, or four hours later. And so those three aspects that I write about that in depth in my book, Memory Makeover, those three aspects of uh, blood sugar imbalance are the perfect storm or the, the triad of risk factors that is the most common driver of dementia, especially in Alzheimer's and mild cognitive impairment. And so the, the, the key is to prevent the fluctuations, the, the hormonal roller coaster that occurs when we're eating a refined diet. So regardless of what diet somebody chooses, we can't be using the refined foods that processed foods, of course, animal products are processed, 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 right? It, are, are, are processed thousands of times over. So why don't we get that from the original food, which are the plant-based products? Yeah, amen to that. You know, you're kind of known for your work with diabetes. You, the diabetes solution, diabetes undone. So how did you gravitate towards your interest in Alzheimer's? Yeah, so my, my initial interest in diabetes actually began in 1985, Chef AJ, when um, uh, Dr. Dr. James Anderson, who is an eminent endocrinologist, uh, professor of medicine at University of Kentucky at Lexington, he came to Loma Linda University and gave a lecture series. And he was showing study after study after study on how he had personally, in the 70s, reverse type two diabetes, even in people that were out of control diabetics. And, and I, I had not heard of this from anybody up until that point. And so I, I, I made it my, my passion to figure out the underlying mechanisms. And of course the key mechanism is insulin resistance. 
and the muscles and the liver become resistant to the effort of the body producing more insulin. And now the body has, the pancreas has to produce more and more and more insulin to control blood sugars. Well, producing all that extra insulin is one of the worst things that can be done uh, for people who are wanting to prevent or reverse heart disease, prevent or reverse autoimmune disease, cancers, and dementia and Alzheimer's as well. So, so the, the, then, uh, uh, then some years later, I, I read an article by a, a professor of medicine at, at Brown University who, who, who uh, noticed that, that the, the, the brains, the cadaver brains of people who died with Alzheimer's were extremely insulin resistant. And that caught my attention because I'm an expert in reversing insulin resistance. That's what I do. And, and that's how you reverse heart disease risk. That's how, and that's how a plant-based diet works largely is by reversing insulin resistance. And, and so the number one cause of Alzheimer's, the most common driver or underlying trigger of Alzheimer's is insulin resistance, which has to do with blood sugar imbalances and an excess production of insulin. And one more point on insulin, Chef AJ, what is really interesting is that the, the body is always trying to find balance. And so when the pancreas overproduces insulin in order to bring the blood sugars back down to a more, health, uh, a more normal level, that protects the brain from the, the, the uh, caramelization, the glazing of sugar to proteins in the brain. And that's a good thing. But in the process, you, have a, you, you, you lose something even worse. And that is, you, by producing more insulin, now your brain becomes more toxic. And this is how it works. That extra insulin has to be broken down, right? Because if it's not broken down, you will go into hypoglycemic, low blood sugar coma and die within hours, right? So, so you're, you have to have an enzyme to break down the insulin. And, and uh, strangely enough, the name of this enzyme, Chef AJ, is insulin degrading enzyme, IDE. So, so, so we say, well, okay, so we have this insulin degrading enzyme that brings the insulin back down. Everybody's happy, right? Wrong. Guess what IDE's main job is? Removing beta amyloid plaque from the brain. And so I have patients who are, who are hyperinsulinemic. That means that they're so resistant to insulin that they're producing two, three, five, 10, 20 times more insulin than they should have to all the time. What that means is the very enzyme that's supposed to be cleaning our brain from beta amyloid plaque 24 seven has now shifted its work and is now focusing on breaking down insulin. And so it's not doing the job in the brain. And that's why people many times, that's why insulin resistance is the biggest driver of dementia worldwide. That's, that's, that's amazing. I'm so glad you know that. What exactly, for people that don't know, what is Alzheimer's? What is dementia? Are they the same? So, and how, how do we know if we're at risk for them? Actually, the, the American uh, the Alzheimer's Association and, uh, define Alzheimer's as, as basically a dysfunction, a mental dysfunction, a cognitive dysfunction that is severe enough to cause, cause changes in functionality. In other words, our ability to do things that we normally would be able to do but now we can't do it. So there's a, there's a whole um, continuum of, of functional uh, changes that can occur. And so when I start working with patients who either because of 
family history, are concerned about their future risk of Alzheimer's, or as I work with patients who are now starting to notice that they have what we call a subjective cognitive decline. Other people don't notice it, but they do. They, they know that they're not as sharp or as quick as they used to be, uh, even though everything else seems to be fine. And then you have what we call mild cognitive impairment, which is when other people are starting to notice. It, it's actually testable now. It's not just, it's not just oh man, I can kind of tell. It's, it's yeah, we can really tell that there's, there, there's word finding issues. There's, there's phishing for, you know, what's that word again? Or oh, what's that person's name? I used to be good with names. Uh, Etc. And then, and then there's the beginning of what we call mild Alzheimer's, and then moderate, and then advanced. So there's a there's a whole continuum uh, that that occurs in this process of uh, of Alzheimer's. So the 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 bottom line is that this this can be impacted. Intervention on this can help patients at any stage of cognitive decline. The key is knowing what tests to do, uh, knowing what their risk factors are. That's why I always start with what we just discussed, Chef AJ, and that is, uh, are they insulin resistant? Is their brain insulin resistant? Do they have this pre-diabetic syndrome or excess insulin production? I can actually have, I always do a four-hour glucose tolerance test on patients, always. I've been doing this for 30 years because my main interest was figuring out what the early indicators were for prediabetes or diabetes, okay? And since insulin resistance or excess insulin production is actually been seen as the number one driver of heart disease, stroke heart disease, it's also one of the most important drivers of cancer. Yeah, if you're producing a lot of insulin all the time, insulin turns on cancer. It, it promotes, not only initiates cancer, but it promotes cancer. So, so if we, if that's why everybody I see gets a four-hour glucose tolerance test, it's a hassle of a test. You got to be at the lab all morning. But we also measure insulin levels with that, uh, with those blood sugars, and we see how high the blood sugars go, how low they go at two, three, and four hours, how high the insulin levels go, how long they stay high. And that allows us to intervene immediately on their risk because that's the biggest risk that we see most of the time. You talk about the interrelationship between diabetes and Alzheimer's. Would that include somebody that's a type one diabetic? And also where does COVID fit into all of this? Uh, yes. So uh, loaded question there. So uh, on the question of type one diabetes, <clears throat> what, what, what type one diabetic people or families with individuals who have type one diabetes need to understand is that when you have type one diabetes, that is a condition that, that uh, a, a, an acute viral infection or acute trauma of some kind, uh, a toxicity of some kind that, that basically kills the, the beta cells of the pancreas that produce and, and release uh, insulin. And so, in type one diabetes, unless it's caught really early in the process, once all those cells are dead, they're dead. Now, now you, there, there have been studies out of Geneva and other, other places where uh, if, if they, they cause type one diabetes in animals, and then if they, if they quickly get rid of the toxic influence that caused the type one diabetes in the first place, then the alpha cells of the pancreas will morph 
into beta cells. So there's always a potential if caught early enough to correct that, even that type one diabetic pathology. But once the pathology is completed, it's, it's not likely that somebody can reverse type one. But here's the key. A type one diabetic is just, at, at, is just as much at risk of type two diabetes as somebody who doesn't have type one diabetes. In other words, these are not exclusive, uh, mutually exclusive diseases. You can have both type one and type two diabetes. Now doctors don't usually define it that way. I'm just looking at this from, a, from an obvious physiologic and pathophysiologic perspective. The, that somebody with type one diabetes that says, well, I'll, you know, I got this insulin pump, so I'll just gonna have my, my you know, double latte with, with loaded with sugar and fat and cream, and I'll just pump up my, my insulin. And, and as long as I give myself enough insulin and control my blood sugars, I'm good, right? Wrong, 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 wrong. That, that type of an unhealthy diet is unhealthy no matter what else you do medically. If, if you're taking a cholesterol medicine that lowers your cholesterol to 120, uh, and so now you can eat whatever you want, right? Because that's the way a lot of people think about it you're still going to suffer health consequences of what you're eating, guaranteed, right? So lowering your cholesterol with medicine, lowering your blood sugar with medicine in no way addresses the cause of the problem and doesn't really address your ultimate risk either. That's a very important statement. So, um, so now, now I forgot the first part of your question. Well, oh, um, well, that's okay because this is this is fantastic. It was that there was a, you were talking about the relationship between diabetes oh. and Alzheimer's, and my question was, is that the same for somebody that is a type one? And then how yeah, well, so, so absolutely because number one, the 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 risk to the brain associated with any form of diabetes, whether it's type one, type two, type one and a half, gestational diabetes, or type three diabetes, which of course is Alzheimer's. Um, uh, insulin resistance of the brain is type three diabetes. So uh, the, the relationship there is that a type one diabetic is gonna have frequent high blood sugars. That's bad for the brain. That causes the advanced gly glycidic endpoints, the AGEs to cause damage, pathologic damage everywhere in the body, including the brain, everywhere blood goes. Um, the second thing is that many type one diabetics are actually using a tremendous amount of insulin. Okay, and so, uh, so, so if, if, if you do not have insulin resistance as a type one diabetic, you should only really need a total of maybe 20, maybe 30 units of insulin a day total. Okay, but how many type one diabetics are using far more than that? So that means there is some type of insulin resistant present, even if they're lean, Okay, and we need to address the underlying cause of the insulin resistance because that can be damaging to a type one diabetic, just like it's damaging to the rest of us. So yeah, there's so many questions before. I can't even get to the questions I have from you. So, so Heather's saying, do you believe in things like metformin or other blood sugar medications? From what, you, what it sounds like, you're not treating the cause. Well, okay, so first of all, <clears throat> metformin was the first medication when it came out that actually helped lower insulin resistance. So in that respect, it was a medication in the right direction, no question. But there's a problem here, is because studies have shown, and these have been kind of hidden in the archives of the medical journals, that 
Matt Foreman uh, actually is associated with an increased risk for Alzheimer's. Now, that doesn't make sense on the surface because as I just pointed out, if metformin lowers insulin resistance, and it by, by the way, it is associated with about a 30% lower risk of common cancers, mainly because it's decreasing how much insulin the pancreas has to produce to control blood sugar. So, so it has some good things that it's doing, but, but, the, but it, it, how, how can that then translate to higher risk for Alzheimer's when Alzheimer's is insulin resistance? And so it's a, it's a very, it's an irony and, and we believe, those of us who've studied the pathophysiology there, is that one of the challenges with metformin is that it impairs the absorption and the utilization of vitamin B12. And therefore, at minimum, somebody taking metformin should supplement B12 optimally and check their homocysteine blood levels to make sure that that gets dropped down to an optimal level because low B12 vitamin B12 less than 425, okay, is associated with a 600% increased risk for hippocampal brain atrophy, where the brain shrinks literally because of the destruction of memory cells. And so you got to optimize B12 and homocysteine, which is that amino acid protein that tends to be higher in non-vegetarians, okay, um, and meat, and, and meat eaters, uh, that homocysteine is neurotoxic. It's not just cardiotoxic for the cardiovascular system. It's neurotoxic. And so we need to get that down. So, so, so I would say this, that the best study ever done on metformin showed that it actually reduced the risk of, of, of moving from prediabetes to diabetes fairly, fairly significantly. But compared to that to the weakest wellness program and diet you could ever develop, Chef AJ, where somebody just eats a little bit healthier and goes for a walk three times a week, uh, that just that wellness program was twice as effective at preventing diabetes than metformin was. So, so you know, using metformin, metformin too often is a crutch. It, it's not solving the problem. It's just. It's just helping a little bit when we need a lot of help and we get a lot of help by doing 100% plant-based diet, staying away from the refined vegan diet because that's not healthy at all and making sure we're getting to exercise, especially light walking immediately after meals, Chef AJ, dramatically lowers the blood sugar after a meal. So none of these drugs then, whether it's for diabetes or heart disease, they don't, they don't reverse the disease. They merely slow the progression. You know, I, I've been, I was one of the founding directors of the American College of Lifestyle Medicine some 17 years ago or so, or 15 years ago. And, and you know, we almost didn't make it. We, we, we were fledgling for a while. Now there's this huge international organization. Uh, doctors all over the world are excited about learning about, you can actually not only prevent these lifestyle, these, these chronic diseases, but you can also reverse them. This is very exciting. And, and so we just, uh, a group of, uh, of, of us doctors put together a continuing medical education series through the American College of Lifestyle Medicine on how, how to reverse type two diabetes. It's the first series of its kind designed to the medical, to be given to the medical community, proving definitively that the data is there 
and we are showing them how to do it. That's great. So and that requires eventually getting off of medicines because, because then you become over-medicated because the diet and lifestyle by far is much more critical than the medicine. If you need, if you still need a little medicine to control the blood sugars, that's one thing, but most people can actually do it without. I think what most people want is a pill for every ill and license to eat whatever they want. Yeah. And, and unfortunately it's a lie. It's a, it, the, the, the license is fake because it doesn't work. They, they think in their minds, they perceive that, oh, now I, I can eat this because, hey, I, 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 as long as I take my antacid, I don't get heartburn. As long as I take my, cholesterol, my statin, I don't have high cholesterol. And so I keep my doctor happy, but your, your health is not happy. Your, your, your health is not good. You don't own your health, okay? Somebody else owns your health, right? And so that's why I appreciate what you're doing with your book, Own Your Health, is that that's unless people really follow that principle, they're not going to be healthy ever. Yeah, it's sort of like uh, putting your hand in the freezer and then burning it. Oh, it didn't hurt. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so Heather says, can stem cell therapy regenerate beta cells in the pancreas? They, they, there is, there's a, we're, we're learning a lot of new things and there is some, some hope. Uh, for that. But here's my main point with stem, stem cell, cell therapies is this. If you don't address the underlying cause of the problem that initially created a toxicity uh, or, a, or an infection because the immune system was so depressed that damaged the, the beta cells, how can you expect introducing stem cells that, that are supposed to grow new cells, new beta cells to work? because you, you're still consuming the toxins that, that damage the cells to begin with, right? So stem cell therapy has its biggest potential in my mind in individuals who first embrace a comprehensive lifestyle medicine, plant-based diet, uh, address other issues of toxicity in their diet. I'm finding a lot of people are exposed to mold in their very home, even though it's a multi-million dollar home. And, and, and I've, I've done the test. I, I know definitively that many people have a problem with that. And so we need to optimize diet, optimize environmental factors that, that impact genetic risk. Mm -hmm. So uh, Kat says, what about people that are pre-diabetic? Dr. Goldhammer has said, there's really no such thing as pre-diabetes. Yeah, there are, you aren't. Well, okay. Well, it reminds me of one of my, my good friends, Dr. Bing Brenniger, who was the director of the Diabetes Treatment Center at Loma Linda University for decades. We ended up working together at Sun City, California for a couple of years. And then, then we ended up in Guam together and, and where I ran the Lifestyle Medicine Clinic and, and he was our endocrinologist, a wonderful, wonderful man. He used to say, you, you, you can't be a little bit pregnant, right? So either you are or you're not. Now, it, 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 it's a great analogy, okay? But, but uh, I think nowadays we are understanding that everything is on a continuum, okay? There, there's more gray than black and white here. And, and the reality is that's why I've, I've developed, uh, while on Guam, Dr. Brenniger and I developed the five stages of high blood sugar with prediabetes being stage three high blood sugar, meaning that there's two stages of high blood sugar that come even before prediabetes. And then 
and then diabetes was stage five. So you have diabetes, diabetes stage five, advanced prediabetes stage four, high blood sugar, et cetera. Well, now we have 10 stages, Chef AJ, of high blood sugar with the last six stages being diabetes, okay? And uh, so different stages of diabetes. So here's the bottom line is that we now through our sophisticated testing, through doing the four hour glucose tolerance test can peg people at all stages on that continuum. So if you have stage one or stage two high blood sugar, you don't even have prediabetes yet. Okay, and so that goes under the radar, but you may have significant insulin resistance, which is driving Alzheimer's risk, heart attack, stroke risk, cancer risk, autoimmunity risk, on and on. So, so why wait until somebody even meets the criteria for prediabetes before we do something about it? So, so the, it's nice to be able to see on a continuum how bad things are, so then we can reverse that continuum one step at a time through a comprehensive approach that shoots for optimal. Okay. And so, so the, the, the value of having multiple stages is that it helps us incrementally improve our health as we go. Great. Thank you. Scott says, what about metals like aluminum? What about just other kinds of cookware too, like, like uh, cast iron? Should we be worried about our cookware and, and things like baking soda that has aluminum in them and, and underarm, whatever people put on their self? <laughs> there's, there's actually, uh, there's been questions and there's been a controversy on the question of aluminum for many years. I remember over 35 years ago when I was a student at Loma Linn University, one of our top Alzheimer's researchers at the time was, was actually looking at heavy metals, including iron, excess iron, um, uh, aluminum, uh, cadmium, arsenic, mercury, and lead as, as potential triggers for Alzheimer's. I, I, I don't, I, so the, the, there's, there's no question that, that mercury and lead are very bad for the brain. They're very toxic to the brain. And, and that's one of the categories of Alzheimer's that we call toxic Alzheimer's or type three Alzheimer's, which is different than type, type three diabetes being Alzheimer's. But it's a form of Alzheimer's that, is, that is, is the underlying cause of which is toxicity to the body. And so, yes, in my patient uh, care, I always measure all those heavy metals. I measure other toxins as well in the urine like mycotoxins, like industrial toxins, like pesticides. I do genetic testing on patients to see if they have mutations to the ability to break down toxins. And I, every day I find patients have double copy mutations to the, the PON1 gene. I call it the pony gene. I, Chef AJ, I envision a, a pony running through a toxic waste dump and, and, and rusty barrels of pesticides are leaking all over it and so I, the pony gene is the very gene that codes for the very enzyme that breaks down pesticides. And there's a lot of us walking around that can't break that pesticide down very well because we have mutations to that gene that codes for the enzyme. So, so uh, that, that's why, especially for those of us with the mutation, we need to eat clean. We need to eat a plant-based diet and, and, and stay away from this exposure of these things, including heavy metals. I will say to the question, um, aluminum 
uh, has been studied uh, relative to Alzheimer's for 30 years. In the last two years, there has been more definitive studies out of Europe that, that show a very definitive link between the two. And, and so that's why I always check aluminum levels in the blood as well and, and encourage people, number one, to not cook with aluminum foil because that, that leaches aluminum into the potatoes or whatever you're cooking in the aluminum foil. Um, uh, I, I encourage people to avoid aluminum cookware uh, uh, or utensils of any kind because you are getting little bits of aluminum every time you use those uh, products. Can we do genetic testing to see if we have the gene you were talking about? Absolutely. So you, you can, the easiest way to do this is to take advantage of the genetic uh, testing uh, saliva options available that we see commercials on almost every day on TV, ancestry.com or 23andme.com provide uh, options to do basically the test uh, many thousands of genes. And then you can, you can go into the, your account with that organization once you've done the testing and you can download the raw data file, which is an Excel, an Excel spreadsheet of your genes and whether they're mutated or not. And then you can upload it into an app that I use called mthfrsupport.com that gives us a 40 to 60 page report. It's still genetics, Chef AJ. And so I've, I've literally studied the, the, the genomic uh, interpretation for thousands of hours. It's like learning a new language, basically. So it still has to be interpreted by somebody that knows what they're doing. But yes, absolutely, those genes are available in those, those inexpensive tests. You not only find out about ancestry, which is interesting, but, but you find out about uh, genetic risk factors. And by the way, a lot of us, uh, it, it went to, when we went to school, and even people in school today are still being told, genetic risk factors are unmodifiable because they're genetic. Well, that's totally missing the point, okay? Genetic risk factors tell you what to modify. That's, that's the point. Genetic risk factors tell us that in this biochemical pathway, which we understand, we know what the biochemical pathways are related to that gene, there are certain cofactors that need to be upregulated so that that mutated gene can be more effective. And those cofactors are always nutrients, always nutrients, okay? Like minerals and vitamins. And so we know how to upregulate those vitamins and minerals specifically to, to uh, bypass the genetic mutation, the effect of that genetic mutation. So Dr. Youngberg, do you think somebody like me who's been vegan for 43 years, no sugar since 2003, and pretty much gold hammer perfect for the last 10 years should uh, have that genetic testing? My mother did have dementia. Well, okay. So that that's uh, all by itself. Number one, that's a great reason why you have you know dedicated your life and, and you own your health, right? You you own your health. But I I I um my philosophy, Chef AJ, is to always learn more about your health. We have an amazing scientific community around us that are generating new, new tests on a regular basis that we can take advantage of. For instance, when I did genetic testing, I had no idea that, that I had high risk of blood clots until I did my genetic test and I did my own assessment, right? 
and and I, I I looked at the clotting section, and I had the factor five Leiden mutation, okay, which is a major mutation that increases my risk of having a blood clot about eight hundred percent. Now all of a sudden. I went back to my family history and recalled that my dad's next older brother, uh, all my dad's older brothers were, phys were medical doctors, as, as was one of his sisters. And so I've, I've, you know, our family just inundated with medical doctors and, and it's a, all different professions. Great, great, I love my family. And, and I, my, my physician uncle working in the ER in Houston, Texas, died of a massive heart attack while in the ER as the main ER doctor. You know that that was a massive heart attack. Now, I remember when I heard of that as a college student, I felt sad for him. He was in his early 50s. You know, I'm almost 10 years older than he is now. And I've known for over five years that I have this, this significant clotting mutation. Now, what that does, Chef, when I found out, by the way, I didn't go like, oh, no. You know, all this stuff that uh, eventually I'm going to die of a, of a blood clot because of this genetic factor that, you know, I can't alter because it's genetic. No, I didn't think that at all. I knew better, Chef AJ. I, I, I celebrated. I got excited. You know why I got excited? Because now I have one more way to limit my risk. Okay. And now, now that I know I have a significant metabolic pathway abnormality based on a gene that, that predisposes me to blood clots, all the more encourages me to get my daily exercise, to walk after meals, to hydrate, 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 to eat the best diet possible, which is 100% plant-based diet. All those things are these strategies to reverse the significant blood clotting risk. And so, and so I have that whole list of things that I tell patients who have that. I am following that and I do that joyfully. It just gives me another reminder of why I should be doing those things. And, and I'm not stressed about my risk at all because I'm doing something about it. Nice. Yeah. Cause I keep thinking, I turn down everything they ask me to do like bamograms and colonoscopies. Cause my feeling is, is I'm already doing everything. What more could I do other than water fast? You know what I mean? There's, <laughs> Well, and, and but it, it, again, it's um, you know there's some medical tests that are pretty invasive and they have some risk associated with them. I'm a proponent of of a of very broad laboratory testing. That like I said earlier, when I was 24 years old, I, I hadn't really done any really significant lab testing. I was just what I thought to be really healthy, right? I was fit, I was a gymnast, I was a skateboarder, I, I, I was vegetarian, you know, I thought I had life, you know, uh, uh, totally under control until I had my, my lipid panel done. You know, that was the year, 1984, when Drs. Brown and Goldstein won the Nobel Prize for Medicine for establishing the role that cholesterol had in causing heart attacks, uh, causing atheroma in the artery wall. So, so I, I checked that out thinking I'm going to be like 140 and I was 244, Chef AJ. My cholesterol was sky high, even though I'd never eaten any meat, but I had eaten uh, other, you know, you know, dairy products and cheese and things like that. So I, I could lower my cholesterol in three weeks by over 90 points, just not eating cheese, not eating cheese or drinking milk or, or eating, you know, eating eggs. So, so 
so the, the, the bottom line is this, is that I encourage my patients to test broadly to figure out what our independent, individualized and personalized risks are. And then we can double down on other things that we might not be aware of. Do you accept new patients and do you do any kind of telemedicine? I, that's all, almost all I do is telemedicine. I, I spend every day in front. <laughs> this is what my patients see uh, uh, when, when they work with me. I have patients all over the country. Uh, I, I spend a whole hour with every patient. It's, um, it's uh, absolutely, I, I, I still see some patients in office, but I would say 90% of my work is telemedicine. And can they live anywhere or must they live in California? No, they can live anywhere. Absolutely. All right. So I have patients in Europe and, and uh, Africa, uh, Canada, but I would say most of my patients are U.S. based. Uh, but I, you know, I, I take patients from anywhere. I like to go to you just because I think it would be fun, you know. <laughs> <laughs> so, what about vitamin D? Does it play a role in any of this? Okay, you know, and I never about? answered your question about COVID, and that's one of the main interconnections. When I was when I was developing, uh, uh, expanding my protocol to optimize uh, the health of patients with subjective or mild cognitive decline or Alzheimer's, I, I, I clearly recognized that vitamin D was a critical piece of that puzzle. It's not it's not a hard thing to fix, you know. It's just something that you need to be aware of, and it's a simple strategy. Yeah, we want to spend time in sunlight. But I will say this, the vast majority of patients will not get enough vitamin D from sunlight. How do I, I didn't believe that until I started testing every single patient with vitamin D. I've been doing that for over 20 years now, since I learned that vitamin D in your blood had more to do with, with protection from cancer than whether you smoked or not. Now, you know, I'm certified as a, a stop smoking specialist. And when I heard that, that was almost like a a challenge. Like, well, how, how can vitamin D optimization be even more important than whether you smoke or not? Well, it was based on the same statistics that we use to evaluate smoking risk for cancer. Okay. And so obviously, you know, you can do both. You can optimize your vitamin D and not smoke. And in fact, optimizing your vitamin D actually helps you stop smoking, <laughs> uh, interestingly enough. So the connection was that vitamin D uh, uh, low levels of vitamin D doubled the risk of Alzheimer's. This was a study published in 2006. And, and on that very same uh, month that that study came out, another journal came out with a, 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 a opinion piece that we shouldn't check people's vitamin Ds anymore because there's not really enough proof that it's really that helpful. I was shocked. And so these so the, there, there is a lot, there's a movement amongst many, many circles of medicine to discredit the use of vitamin D. And that's really, I think it's evil. I, I, it's, it's, it's horribly ignorant at minimum and, and likely evil. It's like, it's like we don't want people to get healthy doing natural things. We want people to get healthy get, uh, by taking the medicines we prescribe. And of course, that doesn't really give you health. We know that. So so uh, everybody should optimize their vitamin D. But so th there's a connection with Alzheimer's. There's also a huge connection with type 2 and type 1 diabetes. Having low vitamin D blood levels is strongly connected with both the diagnosis and the progression of type 2 diabetes into complications. 
which are heart attacks, strokes, amputations, nerve damage, uh, blindness, and, and kidney failure. Okay, so all of those things are related to inadequate suboptimal levels of vitamin D, which by the way, should be at least 40 to 60 nanograms per ml, at least. We know that if everybody in the country, in the world, if you will, got their blood levels up to 40 to 60, and I, I say above 60, upper third of reference, which is 70 to 100, but if people got a, at least a 40 to 60, that would obliterate COVID. The risk of, of getting COVID would go down precipitously, even if you get exposed. And the risk of dying from COVID would get so close to zero, it almost wouldn't be that important. I, I know this sounds like I'm really stretching. Uh, I, I'm not. I'm not stretching. This is, I believe this with all my heart. I have 30 years of experience as a lifestyle medicine doctor. And there's, there's very few things that I know better and more keenly than how critical this is. It's such a simple thing that is being kept from the public. And there's many public officials that are actually lying about this. Somebody in Europe, a major public official, just said there's no association with vitamin D and risk of COVID. They just you say vitamin D days ago. And they're saying a flat out lie. It's, 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 there's more proof that vitamin D can protect you from COVID than, than more proof than stopping smoking will lower your risk of lung cancer. There's more proof for that than that. So Linda's saying she heard too much can be toxic and Diane's saying, how much should we take? Should people test to see what the level is before they take it? Because mine was 60, mine, mine just is 60, just, maybe because I'm outside 60, all the time. Is this 60 nanograms per ml, because the European yeah. standard is different. Uh, right, but, but, yeah, I, but, but I was US advised- standard, 60 is great, by the way. So right. if you're- I was still advised to take it though by my doctor at True North because of risk for osteopenia. So he yeah, said, yeah. So, so 60, by the way, is protected for COVID. Uh, we know that the average person, so, so you're not the average person, Chef AJ. <laughs> you're super woman, right? Mm -hmm. I, I've, I've been following you for decades. I love what you do. Uh, but the, and, and, you, and you probably take the time to spend some time in the sunlight on a regular basis that's critical. That's how you can generate the vitamin D naturally that way. Uh, but many people, especially as we get older, Chef AJ, do not generate vitamin D from sunlight very well. Okay. And especially if they're taking medicines like statins, you don't convert, you don't convert uh, vitamin uh, sunlight to vitamin D very easily in the skin. And it doesn't get a plus if you, if you're super cleanly, right. You take showers all the time you're basically showering off the vitamin D you generated from sunlight every time you shower or bathe with soap. So, so all those things factor in. If you use sunscreen, you completely block out the ability to absorb vitamin D from that uh, and the area where you use sunscreen. So bottom line to the question is, is that the average person in, in our society in the U.S., who wants to have a blood level of 40 to 60 nanograms per ml needs to take between four and 5,000 international units of vitamin D every day. And even if they do that, it may take four months before their levels reach that level that, that in the blood, okay? And so, so that's why the, the, your question is great because I do recommend that everybody should check their vitamin D. I was recommending this when COVID first became an issue in late January 
I, I did webinars and I, you know, I put stuff on my website. I said, everybody get checked for vitamin D and optimize it. If everybody had done that, we, I suspect that we would have saved the majority of deaths that were associated with COVID-19 uh, with the exception of those people that would have died anyways, because, you know, a lot of the people that are being counted for, for as deaths to, with COVID-19 were, were brought into the hospital because they were dying of kidney failure. They're dying of something else. And they just happened to have COVID on top of it. That's not the reason they died, but it was still counted as a cause of death. And, and so, so obviously there's people dying from COVID. I'm not, I'm not saying there isn't. What I am saying is that the that 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 death would most of the time be prevented if somebody optimized their vitamin D blood levels, and of course the, the other things that we're talking about, controlling blood sugars. Blood sugars, when they're elevated, are a major cause of susceptibility to COVID nineteen as well. Um, so, so those those are things that we should pay attention to. There's a study that just came out, just to kind of put the last nail on that, on that, the, that there was a study from uh, University of Cordoba in Spain, beautiful study. And what they did is that when people who had serious symptoms of COVID and were hospitalized because of that, they were randomized into two groups. All of them received all the care. All of this, all of them received the standard of medical care that, that a, a top rate hospital would provide. The only difference was, was the treatment group that was randomized received vitamin D on the day of admission. And it was roughly about 65,000 units, the equivalent of 65,000 units of vitamin D, which sounds like a horrible amount of vitamin D, but that's, that's what you do. If you have any infection, even a cold or a flu, you, you take that amount to get, you, to get your immune system activated, your innate immune system activated against the virus. I do that all the time. And so, so they did that and then half that dose again at three days and seven days. Do you know, do you know how many of the, of the people who were randomly assigned to the non-vitamin D group ended up in the intensive care unit? 50%. Do you know how many of the vitamin D group ended up in the intensive care unit, even though they were randomly, so they were exactly the same risk? 2%. In other words, there was a 25-fold increased risk for ending up in ICU and requiring a ventilator if you did not get the vitamin D on the first day of admission. Okay, And guess how many of the people died who ended up in ICU? Those who did not get the vitamin D, uh, basically 10% basically, uh, of them died compared to zero in the vitamin D group. Okay, so that should, that should be the final uh, a set of medical evidence necessary that vitamin D, among other things that are good for us, is something that everybody should be getting. And then it's so simple. You do that and then you get your exercise. You get the plant-based diet. You do all the other things that we know are critical to health and get healthy again so you're no longer at risk for that. You know, I just had a scary thought. When I was little, my grandmother was diabetic and they called it diabetes. And they also had something called juvenile diabetes, which is, I guess, what type one is now because young yeah. children are getting my grandmother's diabetes. And if there is this strong link between diabetes and Alzheimer's, there's so many children now that are young that are on statins, that are on diabetes medications. We're going to be seeing a lot more Alzheimer's. Oh, yeah. In fact, the Alzheimer's is so common now, Chef AJ, that 
Now, by the time we're 85 years old, one out of two of us will have Alzheimer's. That's how common it is. 50% of us so that means have already have Alzheimer's. Now, that's, of course, assuming that we don't address the underlying risk factors and that we're not doing, we're, we're just following the standard American diet. We're following, you know, the, we're doing what everybody else does in, instead of, you know, what you promote in your book, you know, in your health, right? So the, but, but if you have the genetic predisposition, okay, which, which there's all kinds of genetic predispositions, but one of the main gene determinants for Alzheimer's risk is ApoE4. If you have the mutation called ApoE4, one copy of that mutation will give you a 500% greater risk for Alzheimer's, okay? Uh, and you'll get Alzheimer's at a 50% rate, not at age 85, but at age 74 or at age 76. If you have two copies of that mutation, which 7 million Americans carry, um, compared to 70 million Americans who have one copy, Okay, that, that translates to getting Alzheimer's more commonly 20 years before age 85, at age 65, essentially. Now, having the genetic mutation in no way determines, fully determines your risk. It's, it, it's, it's not a determinant factor. It's a risk factor that tells us get busy focusing on the known risk factor. Figure out what they are, fix them. And now that genetic factor will no longer be anywhere near what it otherwise could have been. Okay. Well, thank you so much because you're doing such a great job. I just got a super <laughs> chat donation from Lily. Thank you so much. You know, it, but again, it's not just the standard American diet may not be enough because like you started out saying about sugar is a dementogen and oil is not good either. A lot of people are just regular vegans eating sugar and oil and they may not be overweight or have a disease yet. I don't think they're looking into the future. That, that's right. So, so the, these common factors that, that, you know, we just, we just think, Hey, as long as it meets the definition of vegan, it's okay. Uh, we're not, we're not considering the facts the the research that, that sugar of any kind, uh, when it's refined sugars will drive de dementogenic risk. No, no question about it. There's, there's all kinds of research supporting that. And, and we know the mechanisms. It's not just a theory. We understand how it does it, okay? And it does it by throwing our blood sugars out of whack, both high and low. You know, that low blood sugars are, are caused primarily by eating too much sugar. Ironically, it's also treated by eating more sugar, treated, right? And, and therefore it perpetuates the roller coaster of hormones associated with prediabetes and reactive hypoglycemia. Do you know who Dr. David Perlmutter is? Absolutely. Okay, so I often get to present at this wonderful resort in Mexico when we don't have COVID called Rancho La Puerta. And one night at dinner, I was sitting next to him and it's it's a calorie portion controlled. So they, they use almost no oil. If they do, it's like minimal. So if you wanted oil, you have to ask. So everybody at the table was ordering steamed greens and they had to bring oil for him and he's pouring oil all over his. And, and he said, do you want some? I go, no, I don't eat oil. And I, he goes, why? I go, well, I follow, you know, a, like a Dr. Esselstyn, Dr. McDougall. He goes, well, what's your color? cholesterol. I go, it's 99. He goes, well, you're going to get Alzheimer's. Like, why would he think that because my cholesterol's low, I'm going to get Alzheimer's. And, and also conversely, Kat, who's watching live says, well, how can a vegan even get high cholesterol? All right. So uh, I'll answer that question first. 
the uh, cholesterol, most cholesterol doesn't come from our diet. It comes from our body's production of cholesterol as influenced by diet and other factors. So for, for instance, um, every cell of our body has the machinery that is able to produce cholesterol. And so, so I, I am against medicating cholesterol down to a low level, a super low level. I'm very against that because, uh, because when the body makes more cholesterol, we have to ask the question, why would the body make more cholesterol? Okay. Uh, it, why would the body activate the machinery to make more cholesterol? Okay. And, and I, I believe that one of the, that partial answer to that is because the body's trying to fix something. Now the, it's kind of like beta amyloid plaque. Okay. Why would the brain produce beta amyloid? You know, you think that uh, it, it, what we think of it as being part of the pathology of the disease process of Alzheimer's, but, but the brain is actually producing that. And, and here's, here's why. This will be a kind of a shocker. Beta amyloid is actually the mo one of the most powerful antibiotics in the human body. The reason the brain is making beta amyloid is to deal with an underlying problem with viruses, with with toxins, with bacteria, with low-grade infections in, in the brain. And the brain used to be thought of as being completely sterile. That's absolutely not true. The brain is loaded with, can be loaded with toxins and infections. And that's what turns on the inflammatory cascade that then turns on the production of beta amyloid, which is one of the most powerful antimicrobial peptides or proteins that kill viruses and, and, and fungi and chlamydia and et cetera. Now, what's interesting here, Chef AJ, is that the other most powerful antimicrobial peptide is vitamin D, okay? And so this is another reason why we want to optimize vitamin D blood levels into the range where you are or even above, because that is what, that is the, the ammunition that the immune system uses, including in the brain, to, to destroy pathogens that otherwise would cause dementia. Okay, so if we're not getting enough vitamin D, or if we're not getting enough zinc or, or, or vitamin C through our diet, you know, we can get 1500 milligrams of vitamin C just by eating a lot of plant foods, right? I do. You know, every morning I get like four cups of non-starchy vegetables, you know, that I, that I stir fry that. It's just wonderful. Okay. And, and I just load up on that because it's loaded with nutrients that I otherwise wouldn't get. So, so all those nutrients are helping calm the brain so that the brain doesn't have to make this beta amyloid that eventually can form tangles and clumps that then lead to dementia. So the same thing is going on with cholesterol is the body is producing it because there's a problem. I, I think of cholesterol as a toxin sponge, okay? So if you're eating a diet that's loaded of to with toxins, then you probably need more cholesterol. And unfortunately, just like beta amyloid, it can end up causing a problem, okay? If you're eating a diet like you are, where you own it, right? Uh, and your, your body doesn't need to make that much cholesterol. Why? Because you, you don't have the toxicity that needs to be countered. Okay, that's why 
that's why I see, I see patients all the time that have super high HDL cholesterol. And of course, cardiologists love HDL cholesterol. Okay. But actually that's a sign of toxicity. Okay. It's a good thing. If you, if, if you need more of the HDL cholesterol to get rid of plaque, then you need more HDL, but it's still a sign of toxicity. Okay. So, so, so we, that's why we need to properly understand what these tests mean. So when somebody has a high cholesterol, I don't say, Hey, let's just give you a lot of fiber and charcoal and a statin to get rid of your cholesterol. I say, there's something wrong in your body. You need to be on a diet that fixes that. So you don't have to make that much cholesterol. That that's my approach to explaining cholesterol to other people. Okay, great. Susan says, is there a correlation between antidepressants and mood stabilizers with Alzheimer's or maybe just psychiatric drugs in general? You know, there's uh, University of Indiana did some interesting work showing that there's all kinds of medicines that increase that are dementogens, that, that are c- common medicines that are used on a daily basis. And, and, and so yeah, there, there's, there's definitely that type of association. What I do with that is let's address the underlying causes of depression, of other reasons why we need those medicines. And, and as we start, that's why, the, that's why the plant-based diet is so critical, so fundamental to health in general, because once we do that, it sets the stage for everything else that needs to happen to improve, the, uh, improve depression, anxiety, et cetera, et cetera. And then we can tweak the rest of the risk with other things by doing further testing, but it all, it all uh, rides on the benefit that first comes from 100% plant-based diet. Great. You know, I, I want to respect your time. We've gone over an hour. It's, it's really up to you, Dr. Younger, if you want to keep talking or come I'm back. I'm happy to answer more questions. I'm okay. having a fun time. Hey, how <laughs> was the last time we got to sit down and talk? I know. I think it might have been four or five years ago when you spoke at the Healthy Taste of the Inland Empire, yeah, which is where I learned fine. your phrase, which I use all the time. Oil is hypercaloric malnutrition. I never <laughs> forgot that. And I do always give you credit. I mean, some of the people are asking for kind of very specialized medical advice, which I don't think you can do on the so I'm kind of referring them to your website to, to, to book a consult, which I looked at. It's very affordable, by the way. Do you take any insurances? Uh, we use insurance for labs. If somebody has a um, like like Medicare or a PPO type insurance, we can, as long as we have the right ICD-10 codes to, to justify the labs that we're ordering, which are pr- very uh, significant, you know, much more than you would normally get at a yearly physical uh, over 10 times that actually. Um, but, uh, in terms of the consult itself, it's, uh, it's, uh, uh, fee for service. It's not, we do not take insurance for that. Right. Well, I'm sure it's, it's phenomenal. Oh, well, gosh, I got it. You, you just keep staying on. It will be good. Thank you, Susan Miller so much. So Joyce is saying, please ask him about zinc. I'm guessing she wants to know how much to take, how often is my, okay. That zinc is a, a really a great question. Uh, we're finding more and more that zinc is a critical mineral for our immune health, for our neurologic health, for our cardiovascular health. I first learned about the importance of the copper zinc ratio uh, about, about 25 years ago when, when we learned that the, the actual copper zinc ratio in our blood is more related to cardiovascular disease than 
than the ratio of total cholesterol to HDL cholesterol. Okay, that was kind of an eye opener to me because back then everything was about cholesterol, right? And everybody needed to be on a statin, so to speak. So the 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 then then we learned that that zinc had a huge play a part to play in diabetes and that certain populations just optimizing their zinc uh, dramatically improved their blood sugars. Okay, and 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 then we one of the big tests that we run for our our cognitive clinic to optimize cognition to prevent or even begin to reverse aspects of cognitive decline is balancing the copper zinc ratio, meaning that the zinc blood level needs to be above 110. And that most people are way below that, like almost half of that. And so at least my patients are. And so, so zinc supplementation becomes very important uh, on any diet. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, I, I, I remember talking to a good friend of mine who at the time was the president of Vegetarian Times. And um, we were actually talking to Dr. Colin Campbell and, and he, he was concerned about the, the supplemental strategies because he felt that in some way it, it, it made your diet seem inadequate and, and not healthy. And, and I understand that perspective but actually, it's, 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 uh, the, the reality is that every diet, regardless of what diet you're on, will typically also the patient, the individual will benefit by testing and optimizing key nutrients. Because okay? we all have different genetic risk factors. We all have different environmental history. And, and so we need to optimize. And so, so zinc is critical, especially in the age of COVID. So, so COVID-19... Um, and, and the SARS-2 virus that causes that disease is, is, um, can be blocked by having adequate zinc and more importantly, having that zinc transported into the cell. That requires an ionophore, okay, a transport vehicle for the zinc. Otherwise, zinc will just bounce off the cell membrane and won't go anywhere. But quercetin, which is rich in a plant-based diet, it's not rich in a meat-based diet at all, quercetin is a bioflavonoid that we get lots of when we eat, when we eat the colorful uh, uh, non-starchy vegetables, the greens, the colors, the, the purple cabbage, the, the, the red bell peppers, the, any, any of those colorful or green vegetables are loaded with gene-modifying nutrients, specifically quercetin, which will activate the majority of genes that can turn off your risk for COVID, okay, and turn on your ability to fight COVID. Quercetin. Quercetin and vitamin D have been found by medical physicists to be the two, the two nutrients, okay, that are most critical to help turn off the genetic tendency towards COVID-19 uh, a mortality or morbidity. So, so again, it comes back to a plant-based diet as the initial core of that. Great. You know, I love that you said you ate vegetables, non-starchy vegetables for breakfast. I've been doing that for almost 10 years and people poo-poo it and make fun of me, but that's, that's, that's my the favorite health. part of breakfast and breakfast is my favorite meal of the day. Um, I, you know, I, I spent 14 years in, in Asia and the, and the West Pacific 
uh, uh, helping people reverse their diabetes, et cetera. And you know, in Asia, it's common for people to have vegetables for breakfast, you know? Uh, and, and so I, I, I started enjoying it then. And then I realized that we, I didn't really get, even though I was, I was promoting lots of vegetables, unless you eat vegetables for breakfast, you're not going to be able to get that many vegetables unless Amen. you're eating all day long. And that's not the best way. Amen. So I'm a proponent of having four to five hours of no food between meals, eat good meals. That's what helps digestion work better. Okay. It also helps stabilize blood sugars better. Okay. But, uh, but I recommend that we have a, a I call it the, the three cube diet, which is three cups of green leafy vegetables daily, at least three cups of colorful vegetables, including maybe uh, uh, colorful berries and things like that. And then three cups of your sulfur rich vegetables, which are like mushrooms, onions, uh, uh, Brussels sprouts, things like that. So I, I chop all these things up. My wife does it most of the time today. I did it. So I'm talking to chef AJ today. I'm going to do it myself. <laughs> I'm going to be chef Wes. Okay. Oh. And, and I, I had this big old bowl, right? And I do that every morning, a big old bowl of non-starchy vegetables. It's wonderful. And by far my favorite part of the day. Well, we are kindred spirits. We weren't, not only were born the same year, we eat the same breakfast. You know, you talk a lot about preventing Alzheimer's, but what about people that already have it or maybe that have an advanced form of it? Is there any hope? Yeah, absolutely. So th this is, uh, I, 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 sorry that you didn't get this book yet, but you're going to get it here shortly. Memory Makeover, the, the how to prevent Alzheimer's, but also how to reverse cognitive decline if it's already present. So there's actually three main goals that I, I work with my patients, regardless of what stage of mental decline they have, whether it's very early or whether it's just, just preventive. You know, I, I don't, I don't want to get this. Like, you know, my grandfather had Alzheimer's, your mother had Alzheimer's. We're both at risk, right? So we're, in fact, we're at as high risk as if we had the gene for it, just because we have a family history. And so I mean, you better believe I'm on this program you know, and, and I'm always work, working at optimizing that. So number one goal is to slow down cognitive decline. And, and a lot of people say, I don't want to slow it down. I want to reverse it. He says, yeah, but the first step is always slow down. Here's why. Most people who have some level of, of cognitive decline are just thinking about, oh, I just can't remember names. And that's bothering them because it's socially embarrassing. Okay. What they don't realize is that this is gonna morph or expand or progress into a memory problem that's far different and eventually where they walk into the bathroom and they do not even know how to, how to have a bowel movement. I, 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 this is a little crude, but this, people need to know this, that I've had patients that walk into the bathroom, don't know what to do, defecate in their pants, reach back there, grab it and wipe it on the sink and the walls. They just don't know what to do. They have literally forgotten how to have a bowel movement. That's what's coming to those of us at risk of Alzheimer's. That's one out of two of us. That's what's coming and that can be prevented. I've had people who come to me with that within a month or two are no longer doing that. They're able to do that again. They're regaining function. And that's what we mean by reversal of of aspects of cognitive decline. We're not necessarily saying that somebody who has advanced Alzheimer's is gonna reverse their Alzheimer's completely. No, we're wanting them to reverse enough of that cognitive decline so now they're functional again. 
And in my book, Memory Makeover, I, I use a case study throughout the book uh, on John and Mary, not their real names, from the East Coast that dealt with me on the phone. I mainly do Zoom now, but some people still prefer doing phone. That's fine. I'll do it by phone. So every month we met, she'd had Alzheimer's for advanced Alzheimer's for five years already. You can read all about her, her whole case study. And, and she went, her, her doctor, her, her, their neurologist was saying, you got to put her in her home. You got to put her into a lockdown. She was having sundowning syndrome for three to four hours every evening, wanting to leave home, move in with her mother who'd been dead for 30 day, 30 years. And, and, and so her husband spent the whole evening, every evening, trying to keep her from walking out of the door and, and trying to calm her down, repacking, unpacking her clothes the next morning. It was just, it was a disaster. So they were telling him, you're going you're gonna to die of stress if you don't put her into a home. And then he realized he would have to mortgage his home to pay for that, that care. It was going to be over $100,000 a year to take care of her. So his neurologist, interestingly enough, had attended a lecture I gave at the American College of Lifestyle Medicine meeting in Indianapolis. This is about four years ago. And, and, uh, and, you know, as a neurologist, he said, man, you know, your wife has advanced Alzheimer's. There's really not much we can do. Uh, but the husband insisted anything, I'll do anything. So he says, well, you know, I'll give Dr. Youngberg a call. Maybe, maybe he can help a little bit, but don't expect anything. So he called me up. This is over three years ago. We met monthly for a year. Within three months, this lady who, who uh, basically was not able to even, she would just sit in a chair and vegetate all day. She was now starting to uh, read and, and, and converse with her husband again. She was starting to, uh, to be able to, to you know, string words together and smile at her husband, laugh at his jokes. And he said, you know, after, after uh, three years, of her not being able to recognize her own sister that she grew up with. Um, she, now, she now was able to go to her house and, and embrace her and talk about old times together. She had regained, she still had Alzheimer's technically, but she'd regained function that made her human, that made her his wife again, that, that made her part of the family where she could interact. And, and that was three years ago. So now I, last time I talked to him, I, I see him only every six months now. And, uh, and he says, you know, I'm so grateful for, for what you did. And it's not what I did. It's what they did. They just got the right information from me and applied it all themselves and, and made it work and got her eating the right diet and doing all the right things. And, and, and he said, you know, the, the best thing about this is that I have my wife back is that, uh, that, that my wife of, of 40 years is still my wife. She still knows that, that I'm her husband. She smiles at me. She laughs with me. She, she you know, we, we have that connection that they had not had for almost five years prior to that. They'd lost that. Okay, so, so if, if somebody with advanced Alzheimer's of over five years can, can improve, on this type of program, what about you and me who just want to prevent it, right? It, 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 I'm on the program. I'm, I'm, I'm taking advantage of every single piece of, of this puzzle. And it is a puzzle. Everybody, everybody has a different puzzle. 
right? So that's why we need to do the testing and figure it out. Well, if you want to figure it out, guys, book a consult because I'm going to. It sounds like it would just be so informative in many ways. And I've been posting the link to the book and I hope people will get it. You'll have to come back because it's just, it's just this, this was, this was over, we're going over 90 minutes, which is like the length of a movie, but I felt like we were talking for five because you're just right. Well, Hey, yeah, I'd love to talk to you again. I'm sure there's, there's always stuff to talk about. Right. Because, you know, when I think about it, I'm thinking about, you know, when you talk to people about their diet, which you really can't do this, like talking, but what they think about they have to give up to prevent Alzheimer's. I I can already hear them saying, well, I want to enjoy my life and I can't enjoy my life without alcohol or uh, we didn't even talk. We didn't even talk about alcohol yet. Whoa, boy. <laughs> well, you, let, let, let's, you brought it up. So we got to talk about it briefly. You know, um, they, ironically, there's actually uh, not studies, but uh, there's a lot of medical articles, even in medical journals, that are like opinion pieces that that are talking about that that suggest that moderate drinking of alcohol is actually good for the brain and can prevent or stall uh, dementia and Alzheimer's in particular. It's a lie. It's a lie. It's just like it's just like the, the similar uh, reports. In, in medical journals that suggest that taking statins would lower your risk of Alzheimer's. Yeah, hey, uh, nothing could be further from the truth, okay? And so this is, this is when, when, I, when I studied epidemiology and biostatistics at Loma Linda University, one of the first little books that I was given by my, by my professor of epidemiology, you know, I, I studied epidemiology of cancer, epidemiology of cardiovascular disease. That's a big part of what I did in my doctorate at Loma Linda um, in lifestyle medicine. But um, one of the first books that I read, and I loved it, it was entitled How to Lie with Statistics. And it shows how you can actually be factual in stating something, but completely mislead the individual reading the article. Okay. And so you, a lot of researchers and, do, and, and, and doctors that have an agenda about what they're trying to promote, like they're getting money from Big Pharma or whatever, and so they write an article. Actually, Big Pharma writes an article for them. They just sign off on it that, that talks about, oh, we believe that being on a statin at a, at, a, at a right level will lower your risk for dementia. Okay. Well, Theoretically, I understand that. It, it actually would make sense that it would. Why? Because statins lower inflammation. And Alzheimer's is an inflammatory condition of the brain. So you think if you lower inflammation, you decrease inflammation crossing the blood-brain barrier, that should be good for the brain. But it's not. It doesn't work that way, that statins are actually more commonly, there's all kinds of studies supporting the fact that the trend that we see in these studies that it actually promotes dementia. Okay. And so, so, so that's why, that's why we gotta be really careful with um, there, there's all this information out there that seems to contradict what we say, what you say, right? There's all these quote new studies that are saying, Oh, paleo is the way to go. Right. And, 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 and there's, there's, you know, uh, I had a patient recently that went to the Cleveland Clinic, you know, to the functional medicine 
uh, unit of the Cleveland Clinic, which is renowned internationally. And then she was put on a, on a paleo diet and, and actually reversed her diabetes. But guess what else happened? She blew out her kidneys. And I go, yeah, you can, you can reverse diabetes sometimes on a paleo diet, okay? But at what cost? This is, it's not about reversing diabetes. It's about, are you getting healthier in the process? You know, you can, you can lower your blood sugars by just taking more medicines, if that's the case. Well, but, but what's the cost of doing that? Okay, and so uh, any diet that includes uh, animal-based protein, especially flesh-based proteins, meat, red meat, white meat, fish, et cetera, is going to increase your risk of blowing out your kidneys. Okay. It's, uh, and so with people who have uh, up to what, 59% of Americans are going to have chronic kidney disease. Shouldn't we all be paying attention to preventing chronic kidney disease? And what's one of the most important things, president of the National Kidney Foundation last year said it at, at a conference at Loma Linda, the Vegetarian Congress, she said the number one thing you can do to prevent progression of chronic kidney disease is go on a plant-based diet. Get rid of the meats, which is totally contrary to what most nephrologists promote. They promote, oh, don't eat those vegetables because you'll get too much potassium. Don't eat those vegetables because you're, you're, it's not going to be good for your kidneys. That's not true. It's not true. They just simply don't understand nutritional medicine as they should. Yeah, well, we're going to definitely have to have you back because you. Okay, I, I'm sorry, I didn't answer your question. So I'm <laughs> back to the alcohol. So, so the studies are saying that you drink alcohol is actually good for your brain. Well, the definitive study was printed in the British Medical Journal. This would have been three years ago. That that they looked at 30 years of data of upper social economic class individuals. Okay, that typically are at lower risk for cognitive decline. And they tracked how much they drank, okay? And, and, and I'm summarizing this. But they found that those who drank heavily, which by definition was, uh, was more than, more than uh, four, you know, three or four drinks a day, that's, that's actual heavy drinking. I know a lot of people who drink say, that's not heavy drinking. That's just getting started, right? Okay, but, but um, the medical definition of binge drinking is, is four or more drinks in a given day. That's the medical definition. So, so that's kind of news to a lot of people. Okay, but if you're if you're a heavy drinker, it increases your risk of dementia over that 30-year period by 600 plus percent. And that they're actually doing MRIs measuring the hippocampi of the brain to see if they atrophy, if they shrink. Senility is a word that means shrinkage of that organ in question. You can get senility of your brain. You can get senility of your muscles. You can get senility of anything. That's just atrophy. Okay. So the the but but what really hit me was when they talked when they looked at individuals who were moderate or social drinkers only. They still had a three hundred percent increased risk compared to the non-drinker. Okay. And so this was the most definitive. MRI-based brain scan study over 30 years to show that even small amounts of alcohol are damaging to the brain. Now, you know, it's, um, I had a patient a couple years ago who I, I came to one of my, um, uh, my seminar series on this topic that I used to do in San Diego. I used to do an in-depth 
uh, uh, 15 hour series over a period of four days at, at, a, at a resort in San Diego. Now that's all online. It, it can be seen online. But um, he came in and we talked about alcohol and I could tell, you know, uh, he didn't really buy into it, you know, because, you know, you know, we like what we like. Right. We you know, I, I'm not going to change anything that I like unless I have a really good reason. Right. I, I think all of us are that way. So that's why we're here to give good reasons. Right. And, and be reasonable and rational in our recommendations. So so he knew that. And then and but his main concern, he was an executive um, businessman. And his, his main concern was he kept fishing for words, you know, extreme, brilliant guy, a lot smarter than me, brilliant guy, but he just kept fishing for words. And he'd be going like, and, and I, I could answer, I could, because he, he was fishing for the word, he, he'd use different words. I go, oh, you mean this? Go, yeah, that's what I mean. I could always finish the sentences for him. Okay. But he couldn't finish him himself. And, um, and so the, he got better and better and it went from, that happening nine times in an hour to maybe once in an hour. So he was doing much better. But then he went on a, on a, on a weekend vacation to the beach with his wife. And he came back to see me and says, man, you know, uh, I thought that stress management and you know, being on the beach and relaxing with my wife, that I would, I would do better. But, was, but when I came back from that, from that vacation, I, I had much more word, word finding problems than I had for many months prior. So I said, well, let's back up a minute. Let's, let's, let's kind of figure out what changed. And so we were going through everything that was going on. We talked about diet. No, he was following the diet. We talked about exercise. No, he was doing the exercise. And then a light went on in his brain, Chef AJ. And he said, ah, oh, I know what it is. I go, what is it? He says, you know what? My wife and I, because we were on break, we'd given up wine and beer because of the dementogenic uh, 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 effect of it. But on this vacation, we, we, we had habitually always on vacation ordered wine and had beers because we're relaxing, right? We're just kind of letting our hair down. And that made a huge difference. That alone, he was still on the right diet. He was still uh, doing his exercise. That alone shifted his cognition. And it took about a week for him to come back to where he had been before. Well, I love that I, you know, I, I, I get so much out of doing this show. I think this is, I think you're number 252. That's how many shows I've done since COVID awesome. began. And, you know, I, I learned at least one new thing from every guest. And I've always talked about how most of the foods we eat are obesogenic, diabetogenic, and atherogenic. But now I get to add that they are dementogenic to Absolutely. the mix. This was great. Thank you so much. We have to have you back. People, uh, Great I mean, people, being with you, Chef AJ. Looking forward to being with you again. Absolutely. Guys, check out his book. It is not on Amazon. I've been posting the link that you can get it on his website. And that's where you can also book a private consultation. I can even sign it for you if you request it. That's great. Well, thanks so much. It was so great catching up with you. And thanks all of you for watching another episode. We've got another show in about an hour with Dr. Lori Marvis and Anthony Massiello. So please come back at 2 p.m. Pacific time. Thanks, Dr. Wes.